Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich, and today I am joined by an AABP member who is a licensed veterinary technician. AABP accepts veterinary technicians to membership, and we encourage all veterinary technicians interested in cattle practice to participate in our organization. Today... Pam and I are going to discuss a recent paper published in the Bovine Practitioner, AABP's peer-reviewed journal. The title of the paper is Urolithiasis, Review and Case Description of a Wagyu Feeder Steer with Struvite Crystal Urea and Urolithiasis Treated with Calcium Bolusis. If you've ever tried to manage these cases on an individual animal level and been frustrated, well, this is a novel treatment that Pam worked through on a steer that she owned, and she submitted this case study to the bovine practitioner for publication. It's a really cool article, and there's a link to the paper in our show notes. I would encourage you all to review the article and read it at your leisure. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Have You Heard? Pam, welcome to our show. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Uh, Being a veterinary technician AABP member, why don't you start off by introducing yourself, please? Hi, Dr. Ginrich. It's great to speak with you today. Uh, My name is Pam Armstrong, and as you said, I'm a licensed veterinary technician in New York State. my educational background is that I have a management and finance degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo, and my veterinary technology degree is from Madai College. And uh, I use both of those degrees to run several businesses from my home in Maple Rome Farm in Clarence, New York, which is located about 30 miles east of Buffalo. So uh, my primary business on the farm is boarding horses, but then I have Maple Rose Stock Farm, or I call it New York Wagyu which is my Wagyu cow-calf and freezer beef operation. And last but not least is Equine Emergency Rescue Services, which is a 501c3 corporation that um, allows me to offer emergency rescue and ambulance services for large animals. But I'm honored to be an AAP member and uh, have my work recognized by the bovine practitioner. So thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. I'm very excited to talk about this paper that you published, Uh, but let's start off recently, and maybe some of our listeners are not aware of this, AABP, we changed our bylaws about a year and a half ago to uh, accept licensed and credentialed veterinary technicians as members, where previously, uh, since our organization was founded, it was for veterinarians and veterinary students, but recognizing the critical role that veterinary technicians uh, play in the veterinary profession, and uh, I am of the opinion that bovine practice has underutilized veterinary technicians compared to companion animal practice and perhaps equine practice. So, Pam, let's get your thoughts as a technician, as an AABP member. How do you see the role of veterinary technicians uh, helping in bovine practice and maybe alleviating some of the workforce challenges we're having where we just simply do not have enough bovine veterinarians uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I kind of want, I see so many veterinary technicians in the small animal world and um, very few in the large animal world. And I, I think they're missing the boat. Um, 
veterinary technicians can be very, very helpful. They can generate um, extra revenue for the the practice. Uh, They can make them run much more efficiently. Um, You know, and, and how do they do that? Well, Mobile, most most cattle or uh, large animal veterinary practices uh, are mobile veterinary practices. So they spend a lot of time in, a, in their vehicles traveling from farm to farm. And if they're driving, they can't be recording notes, generating invoices or calling clients. So veterinary technicians can help with that. They can either share the driving duties or, or do the recording of, of the notes and calling clients. And then once they get to the client farm, um, Technicians can can uh, measure vitals. They can perform technical tasks, collect samples, and that leaves a veterinarian much more time to get their job done. You know, doing the actual diagnosing and prognosing. Um, and then once they get back to the practice, the veterinary technician can process and perform lab work. You know, there are a lot of lab tests that don't actually need to be sent out to a referral lab. They can be run in house with simple, inexpensive equipment. They can save time. You can get your um, results much quicker. And it's another way to generate income for the practice. I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate those thoughts. And I just want to reiterate to our listeners that if you are an AABP member and you employ veterinary technicians uh, in your practice, pay for their AABP membership. Uh, I really think that they're going to get a lot of value out of it. And Consider where you might be able to utilize a veterinary technician if you are frustrated and unable to find enough veterinarians to work for your practice. So maybe that is a way that you can help your practice. So really appreciate those thoughts, Pam. And I want to now dive into the paper that uh, uh, Pam is the author, uh, the sole author on, uh, in the Bovine Practitioner. Reminder that The Bovine Practitioner is AABP's peer-reviewed journal, and this is a case study, and the title of the paper is Review and Case Description of Wagyu Feeder Steer with Struvite Crystal Urea and Urolithiasis Treated with Calcium Bolasis. So this is what we would call a novel treatment protocol, and uh, it's just a really interesting paper, and we're going to link the paper in the show notes, and Pam and I are going to walk through the paper uh, today, but really encourage you to read that paper. Some, there's some really good images in that paper uh, for you to read. So let's start off, Pam, with just a little bit of review of urolithiasis in cattle. How common is this condition as a cause of mortality in, in feeder cattle? Well, according to what I've read, urolithiasis is the fifth most prevalent cause of death in feedlots. I have no experience with feedlot, feedlots, so I, I can't speak for that, but that's what I've read. But um, in my small cap- cattle operation that I've had for 10 years, I've experienced three cases among my animals, and I know several fellow Wagyu breeders who have experienced uh, urolithiasis in their cattle as well. And let's, you, you talk about a couple of types of uroliths in cattle. So let's review a little bit about the risk factor for those types of urolith. There are two types of uroliths uh, seen in cattle, and those are ones that form an alkaline urine and ones in which the urine pH has no effect. And the uroliths that I address in my paper are struvites, which are a phosphorus-based type of urolith. Um, and they tend to occur in animals that are fed high grain diets. There may even be a vitamin A deficiency component to that as well. The other type of commonly seen uroliths in cattle are silicates. And those are the ones in which urine pH has no impact on the formation. 
those are commonly seen in animals grazing corn stalk residue or other plants that have high levels of silicate. Yeah, that's a, and it's very important uh, to make sure that if you are seeing this in in uh, in cattle that you identify uh, those urolis and look at those crystals. So, Pam, let's talk a little bit about the common clinical signs that a veterinarian or a veterinary technician or a producer might see in an animal that has urolithiasis. Okay, so I'm going to address the uh, struvite-based urolithiasis because that's what the paper's about. Um, yeah. And the common clinical signs that one might see are something as simple as the presence of mineralized granules in the hair around the prepuce, and they look like little grains of sand. Uh, one might notice uh, frequent or painful or bloody urine, uh, inapidence, or depression. And as a urinary tract irritation, which is caused by the, um, the urolith progresses to a blockage, the clinical signs might become more severe. They would include tail swishing, uh, kicking at the abdomen, lying down, vocalizing, or even dysuria with a total blockage. We're going to get into the treatment on this case, but historically, how were a lot of these um, um, cases, the struvite uh, uh, urolithiasis, how are they typically managed and prevented? Well, other than harvesting the animals as soon as possible to, you know, take them out of their misery, um, minor or minor cases, I would say, are typically managed by adding ammonium chloride to the animal's diet. Mm. But the, the amount of ammonium chloride that you have to add to their feed is so large. So that they, they recommend 233 to 333 milligrams per kilogram. Um, of ammonium chloride added to the diet. And that's about a third of a cup or a quarter of a pound. So that's a lot for these animals to ingest and they don't find it palatable and they don't eat their feed, which is contradictory to what a feeder is supposed to be doing. So I, I'm not sure what the protocol is at feedlots, but that's usually what um, veterinarians prescribe on the farm. Yeah. And then the other option would be surgery, which carries great risk and is, expense. Is, yeah. Expense <laughs> yeah. And, and complication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now this particular case that, the, that uh, uh, was published in the bovine practitioner, let's talk about this patient. So this was one patient. What was the signalment history and clinical signs in this patient? Okay. So first of all, the patient belong to me. It was yes. one of my years. I, I want to make that very clear because this is, as a veterinary technician, I'm not supposed to be, you know, treating animals on my own, but he does belong to me. And I was consulting with my herd veterinarian. Um, but so this animal was a 27-month-old black Wagyu feeder steer. Um, he was being fed a very high-energy uh, diet consisting of mostly corn and wheat middlings. Um, and he had been on this diet for about nine months. He had no past history of illness, and he had, was up to date on his core vaccines and deworming, et cetera. Um, and and his, the clinical signs that he presented were acute abdominal pain. You, you can kind of tell they kind of hump up their, their back a little bit. He was tail swishing a little bit. He wasn't real hungry. Um, I saw him urinating frequently, you know, small amounts. So I, I did a little physical exam, and you know, his heart rate was a little elevated, but his hydration status appeared to be normal. Um, he didn't have any eye recession. His skin tenting was normal. He had moist more, uh, oral mucous membranes. 
But when I further looked at him, I saw that um, he had that little mineral calculi and the hairs around his prepuce. And that was the biggest clue to what the problem was. Yeah. And did you do any diagnostic tests? And if yes, did they help you guide your, uh, your uh, treatment plan? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I immediately collected a urine sample uh, from him. And I also grabbed some blood for a CBC and chemistry panel. Um, so the urine sample was a free catch sample, but uh, so I knew it might be contaminated, but I usually do a, a dipstick test um, and I do a microscopic e- examination of a centrifuged and stained sample. And I was able to see, you know, look at the color and the concentration um, also to confirm his hydration status because I wanted to give him some pain medicine, but I didn't want to do that if his, if his, if he was dehydrated and his kidneys were compromised. Um, so, and then the, the blood sample was sent out. Um, and of course you don't get those results back for a couple of days, but again, I wanted to double check and make sure everything else was okay. Um, and I also, you know, I did repeat your analyses to, to just keep checking to see what was happening. Yeah. And you, you talk, uh, there's some really good discussion in the paper about, um, the diet formulation and, and how you adjusted that. Um, talk a little bit about how you evaluated the diet uh, and how you adjusted that. So I have a nutritionist who formulates my diets. Uh, he's a he's a PhD in bovine nutrition, so um, I was pretty confident that that was okay. And I, I checked I checked the formula to see what the calcium phosphorus ratio was because that's a huge component. Um, in this disease. And, and you really want the, the ratio to be anywhere between 1.5 to 2 to 1. Um, and I checked my formula and it said 1.7 to 1. But that's on paper. So I sent out a feed sample just to make sure and had it analyzed. And the result was 1.7 to 1. So I, I knew the, the ratio was good. But it's really important to check that. Yeah. And then talk a little bit about the way you you treated this steer, uh, what what did you do that was a little bit unique to attempt to dissolve the struvite uh, uroliths? Right. So knowing that the common treatment uh, was prescribing ammonium chloride, adding that to their diet, I knew that I had to acidify um, his diet to help dissolve these struvites. And the blood work also revealed that his phosphorus levels were high. And calcium and phosphorus, it's measured in a ratio because um, they bind together. And the clue to me was his phosphorus levels were high. He didn't have enough calcium or he wasn't, they weren't binding properly. I, I don't really know the mechanics of it, but mm-hmm. it just wasn't, wasn't right. So uh, I thought, well, maybe I could add some calcium to his diet. And I checked to make sure I, I didn't want to overdo it and cause other types of stones. So I did some calculations, um, how much he should have, how much was in his diet. And I felt it was safe to try giving some calcium boluses. And um, I chose those because I remember reading on one of the packages, if one of these calcium boluses breaks, do not administer it to the animal because it could burn the esophagus. It's so acidic. So I said, well, that's perfect. That gives me the <laughs> calcium. That gives me the acid, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so that's how I decided to do I did start out with one brand and switch to a second brand 
because the second brand had four different types of calcium and they all have different bioavailability times. So the second one had four different types and I, I felt it was more like a time release uh, capsule, so to speak. Um, and it would give me a sustained amount of calcium over several days, which it did. You decided that you were going to administer this steer calcium boluses orally. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- how, how many did you give the steer and, how, and for how long? So the ones I ended up using that had the four different types of calcium compounds, I ended up giving every three days, I believe. I, I was do, I was checking the, his urine almost daily uh, just to see what the results were. And I was able to get away with maybe two or three boluses every three days. Or, you know, I was trying different, different mix-ups. I would try mm-hmm. maybe two days and then give one to see if I could extend it a little bit. But basically it was two or three boluses every couple of days. And it seemed to keep him very comfortable. Did you give any ancillary therapy, pain medications, antimicrobials, anything like that? Well, I started out by giving the meloxicam. Uh, tablets because he was uncomfortable and I, I had no way of making the struvites go away at the time. So my, my goal was just to keep him comfortable. But I also knew that I couldn't keep giving meloxicam until harvest because there's a, a withdrawal period. So I needed to come up with some way to, to make him more comfortable and dissolve these struvites. Um, I did at one point give him some antibiotics because I, one of the uh, urine samples showed some bacteria and while I was waiting for a sample um, to, to uh, incubate, uh, to do a culture, um, I thought it was prudent to give some antibiotics prophylactically. And, and I did consult with my herd veterinarian to make sure that that was the right thing to do. And, and we both agreed that, that it wouldn't hurt. So, but I didn't need them at the end. So. You obviously have several other animals. Did you look at the rest of the herd? Were there any other animals that were affected that were at about the same stage of production as this steer? Yeah, so he had, I think he had three in his group. And I believe it or not, I collected a urine sample from all of them. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and I would maybe find one or two crystals on a slide. Some had none. None of them were were as bad as his were. Um, that being said, there was a steer in an earlier age group who a couple months later started to develop some struvites. At this point, I hadn't made any changes to my, um, feed formula. I was still in the same batch. Um, so I was able to give him a couple of boluses. I was able to then get a, uh, harvest appointment for him. And I didn't have to give him any prescription medications or pain meds or antibiotics. And he was completely comfortable uh, until his harvest date. That's cool. That's cool. So you were, so the outcome of this case is, is that you were able to uh, manage this steer medically with the calcium boluses and some pain medications. Were you able to follow the animal through to harvest? Yes. Yeah. And the outcome was really, it was excellent. Um, so I have a, a carcass grading camera that we use to, well, all carcasses are graded at the 12th rib cut in the United States. And um, this carcass graded uh, 41% for intramuscular fat. 
So that sounds that sounds yummy. <laughs> it was yeah. It, I was really happy. I was not sure what was going to happen, but it was fantastic. The outcome was great, and the beef was delicious. Oh, that is great. That's great. That's good. And you you were able to to visualize some of the tissues. Talk a little bit about that. There's some great pictures in the in the publication uh, that you were able to collect some of those samples uh, at harvest. Yeah, so I asked the butcher if I could uh, have the urinary tract, and they kind of look at me like I'm crazy, but they they uh, complied. So they gave me the kidneys, uh, the ureters, the the bladder, the urethra, all the way down to the to the penis, and I opened it all up just to see um, see what was going on, you know, from the inside. And I, you know, I did notice that the inside of the bladder had some, some red spots were, which, you know, indicate inflammation, but not the entire inside of just this one section of the bladder. Um, and there still were some small calculi that looked like sand particles that were in the urine. So, you know, it tells me that the treatment I used was effective in the short term, in, in this case, two months, but it wasn't a completely curative. That's really great. Again, encourage our listeners to look at some of the images. Uh, Pam included uh, images of the urinary tract as well as uh, images of the urinalysis looking at the uh, crystals under the microscope. So those are some good pictures. Let's talk a little bit as we wrap up here, Pam. Um, What are some practical tips for listeners who might want to consider using this treatment protocol for urolithiasis? What should they do to maybe identify patients that might respond to it and and then monitoring during the therapy like you did? Well, let let me start by saying that what worked for me and my animals may not work for others, but Mm -hmm. but it's worth trying. You know, as long as the animal remains comfortable during the treatment, it's definitely worth trying. Um, I I would strongly suggest having a feed analysis performed and frequent urinalyses um, to monitor the effect of the calcium on the struvites and to be able to know, you know, when to treat and how much. And, you know, it's not always easy to get urine samples, but it's worth it. It's worth the trouble. Um, they're not that hard to run. And uh, the other thing is that the, all the calcium boluses are not the same. As I mentioned earlier, they're different types. And the one I used had four different types of calcium with various availability times. So to me, that was instrumental in providing a time release effect. But I, I would love to hear if others are as successful as I was with using this treatment. Well, Pam, I really appreciate your insights. I appreciate you being a member of AABP as a veterinary technician and for submitting this paper to the bovine practitioner. This is what the bovine practitioner is all about, is providing practical research and case studies that veterinarians can incorporate uh, in the field. That's what AABP is all about and uh, really encourage our listeners to look at this case study uh, and Maybe the next time you see an animal with urolithiasis, this might be a therapeutic regimen that you could potentially recommend. So uh, um, again, also I want to remind our listeners that if you have an interesting case study uh, with a novel therapy, please consider submitting it to the Bovine Practitioner, our peer-reviewed journal. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me or one of our associate editors. We're happy to help you through the uh, publication process uh, and the peer review process. So, Pam, really appreciate your time today and appreciate 